motion pictures rule. Two men bestowed with the gift of too much time on their hands must join forces to watch these movies, each for the first time. This is View the Right Thing. Join Wes and Steve on their journey this week as they watch Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory and Career Opportunities, written by John Hughes. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's installment of View the Right Thing. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of our uh, was previously untitled movie podcast, but we have a title now. But we'll get to that in just a minute. Yeah, Steve, how how was your last two weeks? Oh man, my last two weeks were pretty good. Um, there's been a lot of uncertainty, but uncertainty about very good things. That's some good. of which I'm not allowed to talk about at all. Sure. And so since I'm having a hard time remembering exactly which ones I can talk about and which I can't, I uh, I'll just not talk about all of them. I'll just say there's mysterious. Good yeah, good okay. mysteries on the horizon. Uh, I will cool. point out that by the time you hear this, you have either taken advantage of or missed five opportunities to watch Sharknado on Sci-Fi Channel, starring Ian Ziering, but featuring me, Peppa Jack. Yeah, so that was funny. I'm assuming everybody listening to this has watched Sharknado. Probably. It's probably their favorite movie. Yeah, I mean, um, most likely. You know, so thank you in advance for all of the... Uh, Adoration or adulation? What's adul? I think it's adoration. Adulation, I think, is like applause. Oh. Um, so, uh, Dwayne did our our uh, our fancy new intro, yeah. and, and yet again another fancy new intro. So, I'm um, pretty excited about that. I just want to say thank you to Dwayne Sawyer. Uh, it's pretty awesome of you. And Thanks, sounds Dwayne. Fantastic. Sounds really good. Should we talk about the name? Let's 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 talk about uh, let's talk about. Have you seen any movies in the last couple of weeks? Any, any movies in the theater? not related to this show? Yeah, like something in the theater, maybe a new movie. I feel like I must have. Wow. Well, no, well, yeah, must have been forgettable. Well, I went to see a screening at a movie theater mm-hmm. of the new documentary "I Am Chris Farley." Oh yeah, okay. How was it? It was a strange experience. Okay. Because I'm a huge Chris Farley fan. Yeah. So I was very delighted to hear these stories and see a lot of footage of him. But really, as far as documentaries go, it was pretty much like made for TV. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of really just, you know, sort of public domain-y music that's just kind of slapped on to the thing so that they could save money. Uh, they really only used maybe like seven to ten clips from SNL and Tommy Boy and other movies and just kind of kept showing those, you know, pieces of those same clips over and over and over again. Right. Rather than really digging into his body of work and showing a whole lot of stuff. There was a lot of home movie footage. That was great. There was a lot of great interviews with people who knew him very well. But, uh, you know, for the price of a ticket. Wait for it to come on TV. Fair enough. That's the best I can tell you. Fair enough. I went and saw uh, the new Fantastic Four movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, How four was it? um, Well, not very. It wasn't very four? No. But it was fantastic. No. 
Oh. Wasn't that either. Um, it's uh, it's not as bad as Rotten Tomatoes makes it look. I mean, it's not 9% bad. Okay. Um, it's more like 50% bad. Um, huh. I, I think, like, the first half of the movie is really intriguing. And, um, you, I mean, the characters are a little, like, wooden. Um, really? Yeah. Wait, isn't one of them made of rock? Well, that's a little later. And another made of fire? Yeah, that's a little later. So, but you say wooden? I yeah, see. they're they're the performances are wooden. Um, oh, despite despite the fact that they're all really talented people, sure. Um, it's just there's just no oomph behind much of it. Hmm. The uh, the first half is definitely the better half. The second half feels like a completely different film. It's really? almost yeah, it's almost like they they made two different movies and then just like kind of smooshed them together. Wow. Yeah. Now I I feel like I'm in an even bigger hurry to see it. Yeah, I'm sure. Why not? I, mean, I want to see how that happens. Yeah, um, it just it just movies. it just doesn't have a lot of heart. Doesn't have a lot of. I, you know, there's there's a lot of sequences that are great in the movie. Okay. And I think that's kind of like Josh Trank's thing. The director of this movie is like, um, you know, he's really good at coming together with sequences. But everything that happens in between the sequences, like if you look at Chronicle, Chronicle's a great film. Um, right. I really enjoy that movie. But that's a movie of sequences. That's not. I mean. Everything that happens in between the sequences is just kind of like shoe leather. Yeah. You know? It's just like pacing. Huh. So um, that, he kind of suffers from that as well. Even, even in the second half, there's some great sequences. Um, the climax of the film is boring and... Really? Yeah, just, just not very interesting. It doesn't really feel like there's uh, um, much of a threat going on there. So it's just, just a little disappointing. But, uh, this is heartbreaking news. You know, you know, if you're a huge Fantastic Four <laughs> fan, you know, maybe go see it just because it's got characters that, you know, you love in it. That's okay. kind of nice to see on the big screen sometimes. Um, I think if you can go in lower, with lowered expectations, it's probably a better All right. plan as well. But, wow. Um, so ratchet your expectations from a Fantastic Four to like a Fantastic Two. Or, yeah. And you might enjoy it. Or a... Uh, Slightly below mediocre four. Uh, this pains me to hear. Yeah. Um, I went with somebody who um, generally, like most movies, is pretty lenient on um, our, our our mutual friend, Daniel. Yes. And uh, and there was a point in the movie, he early in the film, he, he leaned over and was like, I hate this movie. Really? Yeah. I mean, He's it, very forgiving. Yeah. I think... I think that was a little early on for him to like be feeling that. Okay. Um, I think maybe some things kind of smoothed out a little bit, but he generally had the same feeling that like this was not a well executed film. Oh so, man. Yeah. So you've made me sad. I'm sorry. Let's, let's talk, let's talk about something a little bit more uplifting when we yeah. get to paths of war. I'm just joking. That's Wait. not that uplifting. We're going to talk about something else first. We're going to talk about the, the title of this podcast. Um, yeah. Now, you know, we waited a little bit into the podcast to talk about it, but um, anybody that's actually looked at the title of the podcast already knows the answer. That's true. To this, but, but we can talk about the story of how we got there. Yeah. So why don't you? Do you want to? Do you want to? Well, uh, we had uh, we had done two episodes with no name at all because we couldn't decide on a name, and we were having fun trying to get input from other people about what our name should be, and I really enjoyed that process. Thank you, listeners. Um, so a lot of people suggested a lot of great things. Uh, some people, myself included, uh, suggested some great and some completely ridiculous things. I suggested nothing. Not at all? I don't think anything was my suggestion. Really? Yeah, I just, I the, the creative juices were not flowing, so... Um, I thought you were Wes 
by North by that West Northern. That, that was, was me in, oh. a pod, in in our first podcast. Oh, that okay. was you. I have a hard time with my own memory, folks. Mm-hmm. So then we narrowed it down to what a uh, a final three, four. Well, we re- eliminated one of the final four, right? So a final four, we eliminated one right away, and then we opened the voting to either Indiana Jaws, mm-hmm. view the right thing, mm-hmm. named after the Spike Lee movie, mm-hmm. or. There's something about movies. There's something about movies, named after There's Something About Mary by the Farrelly Brothers. Yeah. The votes have been tabulated. Yep. They've been counted. Mm-hmm. They've been contested. They were contested. And recounted. By by one person in this room, they were contested. Yes. Probably me. It was you. Because I am very... I, I'll contest every vote no matter what. Yeah, whether I he want, has a stake in it or not. I want the truth to come out. You know, I still say the blue M and M snuck in there. I think I think purple was ahead in that election. If you remember that, okay, I don't. But oh, okay. years ago they let us vote on new M and M color. Anyway, mm-hmm. bribes were passed under tables. Mm, I don't know Votes about that. were recast and recounted yet again, and the winner is Indiana Jaws. That is not true. What? That is not true. You know that's not true. It is not Indiana Jaws. Uh, I. I'm still voting for Indiana We've Jaws. We've gone over this like three or four times. It is not. <laughs> Think about it. A shark with that brown hat on and a bullwhip. I mean. That's what I want as I, our mascot representing Why can't that show. still be our mascot? Why does the title have to I be named? I suppose that's true. Okay. So let's let's just call this official. The real title. Do you is, want to share the real title? View mm-hmm. the right thing. View the right thing. And our, our mascot is now a shark with a bullwhip <laughs> and a uh, brown fedora. Brown and I feel like fedora. maybe he should have um, maybe the Holy Grail in his teeth or maybe one of the statues from Temple of Doom in his teeth. Maybe it changes. Maybe it just oh. changes. Sometimes it's a crystal skull. Sometimes it's a Holy Grail. Yeah. Sometimes it's the idol from or one of those rocks, the Sankara stones from... Uh, my favorite is that what they movie. Were called? Yeah, the Sankara Stones. Sankara Stones. Yeah, they get all hot in your hands. They burn through your, burn right. through your stuff. Kali Right through the back. Is that what he said? Yeah, Kali Ma. Or sometimes our mascot could be a man hanging at the end of a dock by his feet with a license plate falling out of his tummy. That's gross. Okay. Indiana Jaws. I mean, I I feel like I gave you the, the cartoon shark with the, uh, <laughs> the hat and the bullwhip, and now you're just taking it too far. What about Roy Scheider? Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Roy Scheider. Uh, dressed as Indiana Jones, throwing chum off the back of the boat. Saying, I'm, we're going to need a bigger crystal skull. Uh, I'm not opposed to it, <laughs> but I kind of like the cartoon shark. Okay. Okay, let's, let's move on. Easier. So we have, we have a title, View the Right Thing. View well, the Right Thing. Welcome to View the Right Thing, everyone. You're listening to it now. You know, the funny thing is that um, we, we did all this pomp and circumstance. Not only have they read it, but Dwayne has actually probably already said it in the uh, intro. I bet he has, because he's a consummate professional. Yeah. So, so egg on our face. Hmm. I we, like egg. This is what we get for trying. I eat eggs as often as I can. Let's try less from now on. Try, no, not try less. Oh. Should we talk about the movies we've watched for tonight's episode? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. What should we watch? What should we talk about first? Well, I feel like we've we've always gone in order in which we've drawn. <laughs> all right. We've also watched all of the movies in order in which we've drawn. This is true. Um, maybe we'll we'll stick with that pattern. I I, th- I think it's kind of a fun thing. It's fun. Um, so the first movie that uh, 
that we watched was another one of those like situations where we pulled the title. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't really, I wasn't really into uh, what got pulled. I was like, ah, I don't really want to watch that. Watched it. Thought it was a pretty good movie. Sure. Um, not not my typical choice of film. Right. But that movie is uh, Paths of Glory. Uh, it's a Stanley Kubrick film. Oh yeah. Uh, starring uh, Kirk Douglas. And it turns out that um, their their work together on this film is what got Stanley Kubrick the job on uh, Spartacus. Oh really? Yeah. That's cool. Um, they had a different um, a different director, and there was some sort of kerfuffle for Spart with the director for Spartacus, and, uh, and so Kirk Douglas was like, "Hey, I worked with this guy named Stanley Kubrick. Let's bring him on. Bring him on. He was great." A kerfuffle. Do we know what kind of kerfuffle? Off the top of my head, I don't. I don't remember if it was just a scheduling conflict or if there was a problem working together on set. Um, there is one of those stories for Paths of War, a, a, a conflict of, between actors and directors and whatnot on Paths of War. But we'll, oh, get, sh- we'll get to oh, that. Oh, snap. So Paths of War is a uh, World War One era film shot and uh, released in 1957. Wow. Um, interestingly, um, so it's about... Uh, the French Army. Yeah, this movie was banned in France until 1975. Just because of how terrible it makes the not French just Army war, look. but also the French Army look. Yeah, I mean that's obviously an anti-war statement. Um, I'd go as far as to say it's pretty anti-French military. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it was. Least. Yeah, I they agree. make them look like complete monsters. Well, interestingly, it was banned in other countries as well. Um, okay. Uh, it was banned in Spain. It was banned in Switzerland. Switzerland didn't like how it made the French people look. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was banned in France wow. until 1975. Jiminy Jaminy. Yeah. Talking about a 18-year ban? 57? To... Right. Wow. My math still works, folks. Yeah, it's almost, yeah, almost 20 years. Ooh. So... <clears throat> Let's get into what what happens in the movie. We'll we'll go through the movie and I'll uh I'll give some some thoughts along the way and Steve just feel free to go ahead and interrupt me when you have something. It's all I know how to do. Oh, perfect. All right. So the movie uh starts with a uh, three-star general Brulard tells a two-star general mm. Miro that um the army wants his men that he's overseeing to take this hilled location known as the Ant Hill. Yes. Um this they see this as being importantly strategic to their success in the war. Um they think it would give him a tactical advantage and that the casualty rate of his men uh you know just a mere 55%. They'll only lose half a little more than half of his men. That's a little too high. Right. Right. Um so uh Moreau of course, I said Moro, but it's Miro. Miro. Miro um, does this whole like, oh, my men's lives are so important and I couldn't possibly put them in that kind of danger. And then Brulard is like, you know, this shouldn't affect your decision, but there's talk about promoting you and giving you another star so you'd be a three-star general. Right. And then uh, Miro is like, well... For the good of the country, yeah, I think we can do this. I think my men can do it. Disgusting. Yeah. So Miro goes to meet with Colonel Dax. That's who. Um, uh, Kirk. Yeah, Kirk Douglas. plays. Remember, Kirk Douglas. Colonel Dax. Kirk Douglas. I was want to say Michael for the last name because his son is Michael, and that's 
This is true. What most modern people know. Um, so Nero goes to meet Colonel Dax, played by Kirk Douglas, um, in the trenches, just uh, like at the edge of no man's land. Yeah. Uh, and this is actually the first time I really noticed the camera, some of the camera work in this. All um, right. In that first scene, they're just kind of in um, like an office area. Um, it's it's interesting because they do a lot of pacing in that scene, and the camera stays fairly still in that scene. They kind of um, let the pacing change the camera angle for us, whether it's um, a, sh- a two shot of them really close to a two shot of them really far away, standing by a window and and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but in in when they gets to no man's land and gets to the trenches, they they do a lot of dolly shots um, once they get into the war, and uh, and I thought that was really kind of. Uh, kind of unique for the time and um it it created this the film's not a long film it's only like it's less than an hour and a half it's about i an was hour surprised at its lack of length but the but the film feels feels big it feels long and i think it has to do with these dolly shots these mm. really long dolly shots so so miro gets to the trenches and there's this long dolly shot of him walking through the trenches and saluting all of these different men but not even all of them well, yeah, but I mean, he just kind of stop every once in a while. Yeah, he just kind of goes and it's waves his hand, weird. goes and waves his hand. Every once in a while, he talks to the men. Yeah, um, and uh, it's it's interesting because it shows all these men just kind of beaten and sad and dirty and tired. And one of them has sort of gone crazy. He's shell shocked, and of course, he's like shell shocked, and he smacks the guy upside the head to knock him down. And he's like, "There's no such thing. Don't be a coward." That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you have this really cool kind of long dolly shot, and uh, and later that's sort of juxtaposed with a long dolly shot of Kirk Douglas walking through the trench as well. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. But um, it kind of makes me think that um, Kubrick was inspired by this other director named Max Ophuls. Um, Ophuls was a Jewish director in Germany, and he saw what was going on with the Nazis, like their rise. And so he left before the Nazis took over in Germany and he moved to France. And then of course the Nazis invaded France. So he left France, went to Switzerland, then came to the U S and it wasn't until like the thirties, early thirties that, um, Ophels, uh, um, started directing in America. All right. And that was right around the time that, um, that Stanley Kubrick was growing up where he was just a kid. And, and as he was going through, you know, growing up and seeing movies in New York, um, and, uh, and California, of course, uh, as well, I think Kubrick probably got a lot of influence from this guy. And, and what this Max Ophuls was known for was, um, he was stuck to the dolly. Like he was always doing these really smooth, really, um, kind of swishing dolly shots. Um, and so much so, that um, uh, James Mason yeah. worked with him a couple of times and actually wrote a short poem about Max Ophuls about how attached to the dolly he was. And it was like, if he wasn't attached to that dolly, he was probably upset. Cool. He probably was not getting what he wanted. James Mason was in a movie we watched. Wasn't he in North by Northwest? North by Northwest, yeah. He was the villain in North by Northwest. Mm, look at me go. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so Miro shows up and he talks to all these these soldiers. We actually meet um, uh, Farrell, Private Farrell, um, who's this big, tall, lumbering dude. Looks a lot like Nick Cage. Yeah. Um, I'll, we'll address him again in a little bit, but he was actually one of my favorite actors in the movie. Um, and so 
the general is like real clean, um, whereas everybody's like real dirty. And it sort of, to me, short, sort of showed like the difference between the lives of these soldiers fighting on the same side of the army, right? Right. Um, and I think that was the benefit of having the shot be so long, for having this take be this this massive thing. All right. Now later on, Kirk Douglas is going to walk through and with the men. Um, only he's doing it to bolster them. He's not yeah. doing it for himself. He's doing it for them. They're they're about to jump over the wall, out of the trench, and face this impossible yeah. force. And um, they all stand atten- at attention with him, but and they're scared. But he shows Douglas shows that he's going with them. Yeah. Um, and that he's he's not scared. And sort of it's like this really really big difference of like. We walk one way down the trench yeah. with this guy who's doesn't really care whether these guys are scared and care right. about their lives. Probably hasn't even back. picked up a gun in his whole life. Right. And then we go back the other direction with, with Kirk Douglas and, and see sort of a a similar walk but uh, with a different meaning behind yeah. it. I like it. So um, Miro goes to talk to, to uh, Colonel Dax. And he tells him... That uh, he's got to lead his men against the anthill in two days. Two days? Mm. So, um, Dax, of course, is like, there is no way. Right. And Miro is like, well, we can just relieve you of duty and have someone else take over. And he was like, no, 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 no. Because, you know, it's his responsibility. If his men die when he's been relieved of duty, it's he's going to see it as his fault. Right. So, Dax orders a reconnaissance mission. And three men are going to enter no man's land under the cover of darkness and look for some weaknesses. Come up with a plan. And the two men are led by a drunken mess um, named Lieutenant Roger. Roger. And one of the men that's under his command, Corporal Paris, um, they've known each other for a while and they've never liked each other. Roger kind of has it out for, uh, for Paris. Um, so out in the field, uh, go these three men and they're making their way through no man's land, crawling their way through, crawling their way through On and their bellies and Roger orders the, th- the third man with them. Who's kind of inconsequential, um, to go scout on his own. And of course, Paris objects to this, but right. Roger pulls rank and sends him away. Um, Roger starts to feel like it's taking too long. He's like, he's dead, he's dead, he's surely dead, and they're coming for us, we're next. And so he takes a grenade and he throws it, and it blows up, and then uh, uh, Roger takes off and leaves Paris behind by himself. Yeah. So Paris goes to try and find this other this other man, this other soldier, and he finds that Roger has killed him with his grenade. So he goes back to confront Roger in his quarters, and they both sort of threaten each other. And Roger ultimately says, "The court would never take the word right. over you, you know, of you over me, uh, because you're a subordinate." Um, so here's the deal: I've taken care of this. I falsified the report. Mm-hmm. It's all good. It says that he was killed in action. So when Dax shows up, kind of interrupting this, Roger hands over the report. And Paris says nothing. Yeah. Sort of protecting Roger. So that's when we get to to the next scene we get is the, the actual battle. Right. And so um, Dax walks up the line, 
blows his whistle. He's the first one to climb up the the ladder up in a no, man, no man's land and starts, you know, waving everybody on, calling everybody on and leads them into battle. And it feels intentionally long and arduous. Yeah. Um, it's probably no more than 10 minutes in length. Um, but it feels like it's, it feels forever. Cause you're just watching these guys get gunned down by machine guns and blown up by bombs and stuff. Yeah. Um, and actually that, that raises an interesting point that being, shot by machine guns and blown up by, by bombs. Um, prior to the scene, there is, uh, um, there are two soldiers that we never really learn much about. Um, and they're talking about how do you want to go? It's kind of philosophical conversation. And ultimately this conversation, this scene is actually pretty important to the film, but I'll, I'll address that at the end, um, of this, of the discussion. So these men sort of discuss, would you rather get blown up by a grenade or a mortar? Would yeah. you rather get bayoneted? Ooh. Would you rather get shot by a machine gun? Hmm. And they ultimately come to the conclusion that you don't want to get blown up because you've seen people. We've seen people survive that, and yeah. the, the constant injury or the loss of limb and stuff is not worth it. Um, if you get shot, it's over quick. It hurts, but it, but it's over really fast. But right. if you get bayoneted. Um, it hurts. Yeah. It's just painful and it's slow. And ultimately the, the conclusion that they come to is it's not the fear, not the death that they fear. Right. It's the pain that they fear. They don't mind getting machine gunned, but they do mind getting blown up or, uh, or stabbed. Yeah. Yeah. Would you rather take one to the head or nine to the chest? Right. So, so then we watch this big long scene where people are getting blown up and shot with machine guns and just people falling into holes and, and whatnot. Um, and, as he gets about halfway across the field, um, he notices that there's a whole battalion missing. Yeah. So he goes back to the trenches to push them on. Um, again, the, like the long dolly shots are used to like kind of slide across the battlefield to show Kirk Douglas running and trying to get through the mud and falling into holes and taking cover and then getting up and continuing. Um, and again, I think it's just to show um, just how long and difficult this terrain is. And the battle is, and the fact that they don't even get halfway, yeah. is, you know, that says something that you, you feel the length of this. And then it's like, they didn't even get halfway across. They didn't, they didn't make it to the German wire. That's for sure. Right. It's a fool's errand. Right. And they're all just getting gunned down because the boss said so. So Miro notices um, the whole battalion not leaving the trenches and doesn't really care why. We will later learn that... Um, there's too much gunfire and too much, too many mortars hitting for them to even get out of the trenches. If they, if they poke their heads up at all, they're, they're all good as dead. So this isn't a very tactical, uh, decision to make. So, um, but he doesn't care why. So he orders his own artillery to fire on his own men. Mm -hmm. And of course the shell men don't carry out the order. Um, they say that they have to have it in writing and the guy demands it and says, you know, I'm going to have you tried if you, you know, for disobeying orders, if you don't do it. And the guy's like, no. Got to have it in writing. So he doesn't do it. Once the battle is lost, Dax gets sort of debriefed by Miro and Brulard. Yeah. And he's told that a hundred of his men are going to be executed for cowardice because they didn't get out of the trench. Gee whiz. A hundred? Yeah, a hundred. Um, and so there's a lot of arguing. It kind of goes back and forth. And eventually Miro sort of just agrees. Well, how about this? How about just three? Yeah. One man from each battalion. And they're going to be chosen by their commanding officers. 
Hmm. Dax reluctantly agrees. Um, he agrees under protest, but he asks if he could be the counsel for the trial of the three men. And Brulard, of course, tells him he can't, even though Miro doesn't want that to happen. Right. Um, Dax goes to meet with the three men. The most notable of them is Corporal Paris. Um, Roger, of course, selected him because he knows the truth about him. Yeah. Um, and Paris tries to explain to Dax why um, Roger picked him. But Dax tells him that if he comes forward, it's just going to look like he's desperate. Right. And that nothing would come of it. And then that wouldn't do any good for um, holding Roger uh, accountable. Right. So then comes the trial. And the trial is a complete sham. Absolutely. The men aren't allowed to know the full indictment. Dax isn't allowed to introduce important evidence, including um, the record of one of the men, Arnaud. Arnaud. I think his name was Arnaud. Arnaud sounds correct. Um, showing that he Arnaud was cited twice for bravery. And here he is on trial for cowardice. And of right. course, he was one of the men who went over the lines in the trenches and, and ran through. Yep. Um, so he's not allowed to submit the, this information. Um, the court just kind of shuts him down at every turn and the men are labeled cowards and um, their sentencing is going to be later in the evening. And they're, they're actually waiting to find out um, in their, in their cells, what's going to happen. Um, and what we find out is that they're going to be sentenced to death in the morning. Ooh. But during that, that trial, yeah. um, Kirk Douglas has, I think probably my favorite line of the whole, the whole thing was in that. I mean, his whole, his whole like summation at the end of the trial, yeah. I loved where he sort of talks about being ashamed for being a, a member of the human race, essentially. Nice. Um, but he, he says that I can't believe the noblest impulse in man, his compassion for another can be completely dead here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I thought that was a really nice, um, solid and poignant moment for, for that character. So um, we get several scenes of the condemned. They they discuss what might happen to them. They see uh, Paris sees this cockroach and he's like, they're going to execute us. And this cockroach is going to have more, you know, connection with my wife than than I will after this. Right. Um, it's kind of um, the scene is in the prison where they're discussing these things is is one of the more important scenes of the movie because it sort of um, shows how these men fought really bravely for the army. They didn't they didn't back down. They didn't cower. And then um, throughout the scene, they slowly start to succumb to fear and the realization that that they're going to die. And they they don't turn to cowards, but they they definitely turn in. They're no longer these like strong, yeah. really forward men. Um, and uh, apparently, that scene. Um, took a really long time to shoot. Kubrick um, was on take 63 Whoa. when he was told that um, Germany didn't allow, because they shot the film in Germany, that they didn't allow overtime. And he just kind of like got, got all cranky and yelled at some people. And uh, they continued anyways. Wow. And they got the take on the 74th take. Of that scene. And <laughs> so it's good. 11 more takes after that. Wow. Yeah. And it's good. Um, you know, it's. I think it's important to show sort of like where where these men were and then where they end up because it's we, we're going to see a similar transition with the rest of the army later at the end of the film. Um, but anyways, later later uh, in the film, a priest comes in and there's a lot of arguing over God and and whether God exists. And Arnaud and Paris argue and Paris decks the other, you know, decks Arnaud, right, and sends him back um, and he hits his head on a column. Ugh. And basically, Arnaud is unconscious pretty much for the rest of the film. Yeah. 
Um, the other prisoner that's with them is Farrell, who we met earlier. The Nick Cage kind of looking dude, real big and lumbering, and um, he's played by Timothy Carey. And he, I really, I really liked his performance. I mean, how do you feel? I can agree with that. Um, I certainly never. I don't know if I disliked any of the performances in this movie. Sure, I disliked a lot of the, the ideas characters. that yeah. these guys were running with. Yeah, but yeah, the perform. Well, maybe the two generals. I made a note about how the two generals in the very beginning, like, it really, and, you know, maybe this was on purpose, but it really seemed like there was just absolutely nothing, like, it was It was clear that those guys had probably never been soldier soldiers, you know what I mean? Right, they've been... Like, yeah, like, they were uppities. meeting, they were so much about, like, these appearances and putting on all these airs and being, you know, so, like... I don't even know what the word is, but it's like they they were almost playing more at being aristocrats than yeah. leaders of men. You know, what that's I mean? a really good point because they're, they're, we're going to see a scene later where we actually we actually see that aristocratic kind of feel yeah. going on with those men. Um, but uh, Farrell is um, the first. Like I said before, we the first time we see him is when Miro is touring the trenches, and he's kind of seen as like this big, tall, kind of lumbering dude. Um, he seems. He's large. He seems caring. He's not too bright. He's willing to fight for his country. He doesn't right. seem like a scaredy cat or anything like that. Certainly not. And when they're in the prison, I think he's initially optimistic. Like he thinks that, you know, um, uh, Colonel Dax is is looking out for them and he he's arguing for them and, he, and you know, the, the truth will come out. Yeah. And that they'll be saved. Um, and it's when they show up to bring them dinner that his opinion starts to change. Okay. So they show up and they give them probably what is the best meal Farrell has eaten in uh, months, if not years. Yeah. Because, you know, the war has been going on for two years. They've been in the trenches for two years. Good Lord. So <clears throat> it's when he's eating this roast duck. Yeah. And he just tears into it at first. But then I think it slowly starts to dawn on him and he goes, wait, do you think they're drugging this so that way we're, that we're easier to ca- carry out and they can Ooh. execute us without us putting up much of a fight? And then once the priest shows up, um, this large, optimistic dude, this this guy, um, becomes his blubbering baby. Right. And and spends most of the rest of the prison scenes on his knees crying. Um, And he just desperately doesn't want to die. Yeah. Um, Now, Timothy Carey... While I love his performance, apparently um, the guy was like this huge distraction on the set. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, at one point he faked his own kidnapping for publicity. What the heck? Yeah. So Kubrick fired him after that, of course. Wow. Um, so th- the problem that caused is that meant that – um, his own kidnapping. Yeah. So they had to, um, they had to use a double in – some of the in one of the prison scenes, um, wow. one where he's taking confession, you just see him from behind, and the priest is standing over him with his hand on him. Okay, um, so they had to use a double in that scene because they, they had fired the dude. They also hadn't shot the battle yet, huh? So they had to not show the three men in the battle because oh. they didn't have this actor anymore, um, which is a shame because I think showing them actually in the battle fighting yeah. would have like kind of solidified their bravery instead of cowardice for us. Wow, I didn't know you could fake. A kidnapping all that well back in those days. Right. I mean, without the internet, like, who's going to know? Three people? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it happened. Maybe we should try it. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that's a crime. Fake our own kidnapping without the internet. I think, I'm pretty sure it's a crime. Oh, okay. We won't try this. So, um, 
Now, Dax, as we remember, was told by Paris that uh, Roger had killed this, this other guy and was, right. was actually a coward. So Dax calls Roger to his quarters, knowing why he picked Paris. Yeah. And orders him to lead the execution squad. Yeah. And, of course, Roger's like, I don't think I should do it. I don't even know how. And Dax right. is like, it's easy. You know, you you offer blindfolds, and if they want it, you put one on them. And then you order the squad to fire. Yeah. And then you're going to take out your own revolver, and you're going to put a bullet in the heads of each of the three men to make sure that they're dead. Wow. And, of course, Roger's like, nope, this isn't my job. This isn't for me. And Dax basically says, you're going to do it, and you're going to like it. Way to go, Dax. Yeah. <clears throat> a little bit later that evening... The artillery man finds Dax to tell him that Miro ordered them to fire on his own men. And Dax then goes out to find um, General Brulard. Yes. In a setting that is pretty much the exact opposite of how we see all of the other soldiers. Right. And this is sort of the aristocratic moment. So there's all these men on the front line. They're all dirty and cold and sick and tired. And then these other guys who probably don't ever pick up guns are in a massive ball dancing with women and eating really fine food and wearing their fancy suits and stuff. So, yep. um, so uh, Dax shows up and again, we get more of these kind of long shots where we're like moving through the ball just to kind of like show the difference between what Dax is normally used to and what he's walking into right now. Yeah. Um, again, these nice long dolly shots. And uh, so he goes to find Brulard. And uh, Brulard like leads him into like a study or a library or something, um, so they can talk in private and they have a discussion. And Dax first just pleads with Brulard, just saying, "Look, the mission was doomed to, to from the very beginning. It's really unfair to like charge these guys with cowardice because they were never going to succeed, and um, that this would hurt the morale of the rest of the troop." And Brulard disagrees and writes the whole thing off, and he's like, "Actually." We, we've we seen that if you execute a few of your men, that mm. it bolsters the support of the rest of the men. It fires them up and gets them ready to fight. Wow. Makes them angry so they can kill some Germans. Um, so obviously Dax loses this battle. And as uh, Brulard starts to leave Dax out, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, um, I have these sworn statements saying that Miro ordered the artillery men to fire on his own men. Right. And, of course, this stops Brulard in his tracks. He shuts the door. And you know he's like, oh, there's some people hey yelling now. out in the out out there. So uh, um, Dax suggests that maybe um, the wrong people are being uh, are taking the fall for the yeah. failure of the crime because we have Roger who is clearly lying and getting his men murdered, uh, and then we have uh, Miro. Um, who it is, almost seems like Miro just wants to kill as many French soldiers as possible while he's in command. Well, and, to, and to make himself look, look, you know, I think sort of to save face in a, in a weird way. Um, huh. Because he's the one leading this, like, terrible assault where his own men, like, won't do what he says. Yeah. Um, and that makes him look bad. So he's like, well, if they're not alive, then we can just call it a wash. Maybe. Maybe that's it. Sorry about all the kerfuffle outside. I'm yeah, using that word a lot today. Word of the day, kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. So um, the next day comes. Prisoners are let out. They're tied at the stake. Arnaud is propped up, of course, because he's unconscious. Yep. And they try to wake him up, but um, I think he pretty much slips out of consciousness. Uh, Farrell takes a blindfold. And when Roger offers Paris a blindfold, he, um, he apologizes to Ferris and says, I'm sorry. 
And Paris, surprisingly, this is a, a nice surprise. Yeah. Paris kind of nods his head in acceptance of the apology. Huh. Kind of lets the man off the hook. Um, and wow. And he's sort of the better man all the way until the end. That part's true. Uh, Brulard does not put a stop to the execution, and the men are shot and killed on screen. So later at a breakfast, Dax is called in to speak with Brulard and Miro. And Brulard explains the accusations, which, of course, Miro denies. Right. And Brulard informs him that there will be an investigation, and Miro leaves in a big huff. So it just leaves Dax and Brulard. And Brulard then tells Dax that perhaps the general's position would suit him, and Dax gets pissed. Right. Because he's like, that is not what this is about. I can tell you where you can take your, you know, where you can put your promotion. Yeah. And that's when Brulard gets like. Brulard kind of like slumps down in his chair and gets a little defeated and gets sad. And he says that he realizes now that Dax bringing those sworn statements wasn't about him angling for Miro's job. Yeah. It was, he was actually trying to save those men. And the reason we get the feeling that the reason that, that Brulard didn't put a stop to it is because he thought the whole reason was because he was angling for a better job. Not, yeah. not because he really believed the men deserved to be saved. Um, and Brulard tells Dax that uh, he pities him because he's not a soldier. He's an idealist. Yeah. Which I think is a, a very poignant statement for, for an anti-war film. So the mm. final scene has Dax going back to his quarters and being told that he has to rouse his men back to the front lines. And he, he hears and sees them in, in the bar. And he's like, let's give them just like 10 more minutes or so. And this is probably my favorite scene of the whole, oh, right. the whole movie. Um, so the men are absolutely appalling in this bar they're yelling they're rowdy they're spilling beer and uh they've basically devolved from being philosophical heroes early in the film to something just completely different yeah they're essentially like a a frat just ready to yeah tear the campus apart yeah exactly um so the owner of the bar brings out this captured german girl to perform for them yeah. And, of course, they make all these crude suggestions about her figure. And, oh, no, sadly, she doesn't take her clothes off, but she does sing. And so she starts singing, and the men are just, like, shouting and throwing stuff and just being terrible human beings at first. And then as they start to hear her singing, they get kind of lulled into their their old selves again. And to me, it's it's as if the men um, bought into what what I assume is the glory of executing their fellow men. Like mm. they, they talked themselves into being bad people. Like, yeah, I, I have to do this. So this is the mentality that I'm going to have. Huh. And so they told, they told themselves that they're going to be barbarians and, and make it okay to carry out that act. And they, um, they start yelling at this German girl and her singing kind of brings them back to earth. And all of a sudden you see all these grown soldiers start to just cry. Yeah. And then they slowly start to sing with her. And it's almost like, it's like sweet and innocent and the men get all quiet and they remember who they were, who they really are. And, uh, and they remember what they've done and they sort of sing to reclaim their humanity. Hmm. And, uh, and then with sort of with their true selves back, that's when Dax decides to step away. He stops looking through the window yeah. and he heads into his quarters to, uh, give them a few more minutes to kind of compose themselves back into the people that they were at the beginning of the film. So that is paths of glory. It's That's it. That's where it ends. Super sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very sad. Very, uh, oh, what's the word? I don't know. Just, I morose. guess it was kind of nice. Yeah. Gross. I, I was saying morose. Oh, but gross, gross and yeah. morose. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess it's nice to know that there was like 
an anti-war mindset even in you know 1957 when sure when certainly america was very much we kicked so much butt in world war ii that maybe being great at war is like yeah the answer to all our problems right and uh <clears throat> so you know it's it's kind of cool to see that you know i mean sure is there occasionally reason for war history has shown that yeah because we just aren't gonna stop but it you know we definitely need an anti-war idea floating around to sure. sort of help balance things out for crying out loud i was a big fan of um of dax using the line i think it came uh in that last conversation with miro mm -hmm. and uh uh not roger what Boulard, yes. Uh, the line, the Samuel Johnson line, patriotism is the last, I believe he said, virtue of yeah. the scoundrel. Right. Uh, I looked up the quote, sometimes it's virtue, sometimes it's refuge. But uh, yes, the idea, and I know a lot of these patriots um, who, uh, you know, scoundrels. Yeah. They, you know, they're out for everything for themselves. They're, they don't really give a crap about their fellow man at all. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, when really backed into a corner, it's, well, hey, man, I'm a patriot. Yeah. And uh, how much of a patriot are you, really, if you want your fellow countrymen to uh, go ahead and be slaughtered? Yeah, and that, that, that line seems to really piss off. Oh, yeah, uh, it does. Um, and uh, so much so, it actually force, causes him to ask who said that. And it's, like, interesting that this guy who seems – who is clearly – showing himself to be somewhat uneducated yeah. compared to Colonel Dax. Um, this is the guy that's leading their, their military you yeah. know, into certain slaughter at the anthill. I wish I had uh, done a little more research to see exactly how the French uh, military chose its officers back in those days. Because mm. I almost wonder if a lot of it was maybe just like land ownership or... Sure, like nobility. Who knows what. Uh, another line that made me sick mm. uh, was Miro uh, sitting across the table from... Boulard, and saying something like, the men died wonderfully. That was just, that right. made my skin crawl. Yeah. Because it's like, I really think Miro's character, in a way, is getting off on the idea of any kind of death, even if it's his own soldiers. Well, and he definitely has um, a sort of uh, mythical idea of what war is and what happens in the war. Yeah. Um, he, he doesn't actually get down on the front lines to experience it. So he sort of fills in the gaps of like death and what they're doing with what sort of what you're talking about with patriotism and, and sort of this myth of this is what it really is. Yeah. Blah. It reminds me of the old uh, meat grinder scene in Pink Floyd's the wall. Yeah. Where it's like, just raise your kids till they're old enough to be sent off to war. Sure. You know, they all go marching, jump into the meat grinders, come out as sausage. That's sort of right. Thing. It's gross. Should we go to the coffee countdown? Yeah, well, yeah, let's do the coffee countdown. I'm going to tell you something about that um, that German girl. Oh, then you do that first. Okay. So that German girl, um, she uh, she went on to marry Ooh. Stanley Kubrick oh. about a year later. Stanley Kubrick left his wife for this young German girl. For Fraulein, uh, what's her name? Yeah. Um, Roger Ebert talked about uh, visiting with her. Once um, in 2000, uh, Kubrick died uh, 1999, I think. Sounds about right. Um, before, I think before Eyes Wide Shut actually came out. Um, and uh, and so he was, Roger Ebert was visiting um, this woman 
and in their backyard there was this little, like, little boulder with Stanley Kubrick's name yeah. carved into it. And he he saw that, and he's with this woman, and and realized like this was like an important film to Ebert as a you know as an anti-war film, and how that scene with her voice like singing that song meant so much to him, and he couldn't tell her in that moment because it sort of was like one you know it wasn't really the time yeah. to to go reliving that, and two like she probably already knew everything she needed to know about it, mm. so. Um, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. So let's do the coffee countdown. All right. The coffee countdown for this one is is kind of atrocious, ladies and gentlemen. Now I'm going to point out a few things. I'd been awake since 5.30 a.m. that day. We are recording, right? Yeah. I, so. yeah. <laughs> I was just looking over at the, the, uh, the time over very, there. No, yeah. You just, had a look on your face that said, I'm not going to let on that I'm fearing. No, no, no. Not okay, at all. good. Not at all. I was just making sure it was still going, you know, okay. just keeping an eye on it. All right, so I'd been awake since 5.30 a.m. We started watching this movie at about 3.15 p.m. Before that, when I woke up at 5.30 a.m., I'd only had about three hours of sleep. So it's safe to say I was extremely tired when I sat down to watch this movie. That being said, I was conking out within 30 minutes, uh, and I remember dozing off and waking up and sort of doing the head bob, like, you know, like, oh, I'm, out. I'm dozing off, I'm awake again. I remember doing that a lot of times. Yeah. So the countdown for this was uh, just about 27 minutes before I started dozing off. And that's not the movie's fault. It's, it's but Steve's. But is it my fault? Yeah, it's totally your fault. It's your, it's your anti-black and white It's not that I'm anti-black and white. Sentiment. It's that my brain doesn't bother. My, my brain isn't occupied enough by black and right. white film. And it's, you know, I don't like it, but hey, I made it all the way through uh, Sunset Boulevard, didn't I? Pretty sure I did. So, you know, it's not, it's not entirely black and white's fault. It's just a matter of my brain isn't getting enough stimulation to it. And then my body's like, we can doze off right now, can't we? Don't do it. But then we watched a movie that I didn't doze off well. during at all. On a completely different day, we watched it. Yeah, that's true. That being today. And and the second movie is um, one of your favorites. One of my favorites. So, so just a reminder, so we, we definitely pulled um, a lot of classics, a lot of movies off the AFI 100, some off the IMDb top whatever, 250 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we also made a list of movies that um, we love. And if the other person hadn't seen them, we added them to the Muppet Bucket. Yeah. And uh, so Steve added this movie. So I'm going to let Steve, um, since I've only seen it once and uh, didn't do really any research on it, I just wanted to kind of sit back and enjoy a movie that Steve really enjoys. So I love it. Um, so I'm going to let Steve take over here. I also want to point out, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first movie we've watched that is younger than 30 years old. Um, yeah, that's true because Sophie's Choice was like 1980 or 81. Yeah, I have 81 in mind. Um, I don't know if it's picking up on the audio at all, but our neighbor is playing music really, really loud. Oh, is that the neighbor or is that a car outside? Oh, no, that is the neighbor. that bass. Nah, that's the neighbor. She she plays music quite loud all the time. I feel like I don't hear it at all right now. Well, it just stopped. Oh, good. It was probably in between songs. Okay. All right. Well, I'll try to put more bass in my voice. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it might not pick up on the mic at all either. So oh. we'll see. Okay. So the next movie we watched... 
was uh, 1991's Career Opportunities. Yay, something modern. Yay, indeed, something modern. Something that came out while I was alive. One thing that I really enjoyed while watching this particular movie this particular time was there was a lot of love for uh, cassette tapes in this movie. Yeah, they show a whole wall of cassette tapes. And I feel like in 91, the CD was pretty well in place as the as the new thing. You know, I remember, though, around that time going to the mall and going into a CD store. Right. And the, the walls were absolutely full of those, like, white... Uh, yeah. You know, actually, I worked in a Sam Goody. You did? Uh, yeah, in Seattle. Uh, in the... Early two thousands, like two thousand three, two thousand four, in that, that there were still cassettes, period. and we still had cassette tapes. We had wow. cassette tapes and VHS in that Holy store. Moly. Not a lot. Yeah, two thousands. I can see that. Not a lot that. of those, but but we did we did indeed have them. And man, I I, I still go to truck stops. I mean, I don't frequent truck stops. Sure. But when I happen to go to a truck stop these days, I still see cassette tapes. There's a couple of Charlie Daniels cassettes. There's always some something like that. Yeah. Well, Leonard Skinner. This movie, it's it's almost a little love letter to the cassette tape. No, that's not true at all. But the movie we watched today was Cassettes Opportunity. No, that's not right. Career Opportunities, starring Frank Whaley and Jennifer Connolly. Jennifer Hatsi Tatsi Connolly. 1991. Jennifer Connolly. I haven't looked at her full IMDb, but this is certainly close to after her role in a Labyrinth. Yeah. And uh, and what a movie. So let's. Start at the beginning. I guess something about Jennifer Connelly real quick, because this is—I don't know that I have the answer, but post Rocketeer, you can ask me. Yeah, that's true. This is post Rocketeer. Um, and and I keep I keep when I kept telling people, oh, I'm going to watch Career Opportunities because I was excited to watch a movie that you love. Yeah, and uh, and one that was modern. <laughs> it was also exciting to me. Um, I kept telling people, and they were like, "This is the movie I fell in love with Jennifer Connelly." Yeah, I didn't even know this movie had come out. All right, I got to tell you, man, the Rocketeer. Sure, she's stunning in that movie well yeah and in the rocketeer she's made to be very you know what glamorous. is it like 40s glamorous yeah. and that sort of thing and so i don't think plenty of people i'm sure plenty of people fell in love with her in the rocketeer too but i feel like you know the rocketeer is a much bigger movie it's a uh, you know there's war there's intrigue there's this that and the other thing this movie is literally this guy and this girl coming to terms with their lives, and I think she's, you know, what can you do? I mean, I was uh, nine when The Rocketeer came out. I was 11 when this came out. So I'm closer to falling in love age, I guess you could say. Because I certainly fell in love with Jennifer Connelly. Sure. For a career. Yeah, that's a wonderful photograph you're showing me there of Jennifer Connelly all done up as The Rocketeer. She's got the helmet on. Yeah. The jetpack. The leather jacket. She's shoving Cliff happening away, and Alan Arkin's like, "Come back, Lady Rocketeer." Pretty weird that that photo exists at all. But <laughs> but yeah, you're listening not- to Indiana Jaws with Wes and Steve. No, and right now we're talking. No. About, right now we're talking about career opportunities. All right, so 1991. Uh, this movie was produced by John Hughes. The legendary John Hughes. Did, he directed it too, right? He did not. A he fellow named Brian Gordon directed it. Uh, Brian Gordon has tons of other uh, TV directing uh, credits. I thought it lacked the, the John Hughes pizzazz. Oh, see, I felt it had plenty of it, but writing-wise, but in a very yeah. But visually, no. I would say writing-wise and definitely soundtrack-wise. There were no feet close-ups of feet dancing. Are there a lot of feet in John Hughes movies? I don't know. Breakfast Club. I just remember those dancing feet quite a bit. Close-ups of them. Yeah, sure. Huh. 
Maybe maybe just that one. There were close-ups of roller skating I, feet. In yeah, movie. that's true. I can't really think of any feet in like Ferris Bueller or Pretty in Pink or any of that. But then again, I don't like feet, so maybe I blocked maybe them we, out. Maybe we need to go watch some John Hughes movies. <laughs> I'm sure we have and will again. So where does this begin? Mm. We got Frank Whaley. Starts off, it's showing newspaper clippings of a murder, and it shows the mugshots. Well, not the mugshots, the uh, police sketches of these two criminals mm-hmm. and... Frank Whaley's doing this uh, uh, monologue about how this was no random killing. This was no robbery. This was a gangland execution. And he's saying, and I know this because I worked with the FBI's major crimes unit or something like that. Well, it's soon revealed that he is delivering this monologue to a bunch of dogs mm-hmm. and that he is working in some sort of pet grooming uh, store, yeah, pet grooming center, kind, yeah. a kennel of some kind. Um and we see these feet sneaking up behind him while he's giving this grim monologue. And, well, that's just his boss coming in to fire him for wasting time on the job. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very odd that he was thrown out of work in his underwear. Yep. And then that guy throws clothes to him. Uh, maybe in pet kennels there's a particular uniform you have to wear? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I wasn't really paying that close attention to what he was wearing. I saw um, him wearing an apron. I mean, maybe he was wearing like a, like a jumpsuit kind of a thing because you, know, you got to like pick up maybe that's it. poop and stuff. Maybe that's it. So he's the movie starts with him lying to us and these dogs about his, uh, you know, no, what's the word? Know how? Yeah. And lie, knowledge. lie to me. That's okay, but don't lie to the don't dogs. Don't lie to the dogs. So he's lying about his knowledge of the criminal underworld of the Midwest. And, uh, and then he's losing his job at the dog kennel. So then it's him sort of making his way home, just kind of farting around town. Um, he asks the waitress at the diner when they're going to start serving sashimi at the diner. Like, he knows what sashimi is. And then he's talking to an older guy. And the older guy literally says, I would hire you myself if I hadn't fired you so many damn times. Yeah. So it's letting us know that this poor guy, he can't keep a job. Uh, I think it's safe to assume he's probably just around 21-ish. Yeah. Maybe somewhere in there. Um, remind me to, to hit on that note later in a minute. So then, while still waiting to get home and kind of have to break the news to his family, he's chilling outside of a gas station. This beautiful car shows up. I remember it being a Corvette, but I could be wrong. And uh, in the car, in the driver's seat, Josie, played by Jennifer Connelly, basically the daughter of the richest man in town. I think it's safe to assume she was like the hot, the, the hottest girl that they ever went to school with. You know, she's, she's Josie. Josie McClellan, I think. I forget. Surprisingly a little unmanicured uh, for uh, what I expected. Um, I'm not going to comment on that. No, no. But I understand what you mean. No, like, tweezed eyebrows or anything like that. Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing. Uh, She's she's playing the hottest girl in town, but she's playing the hottest girl in a small town. Sure. Um, Another joke I really like from the older gentleman who says he would hire him if he hadn't fired him is he's saying, you ever thought about going over to St. Louis? And uh, Jim's like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, thousands of people over in St. Louis, and they got no idea how full of shit you really are. And I've always loved that line because it's like – it's almost like we don't exactly understand, hey, now. Should I go go be an old man and yell at those children? Having a big party in the hallway right now. Uh, So we don't always understand that, uh, cool, Wes is going out to, uh, to angry neighbor the hallway. It's pretty fun. No, he's being nice. Wes is always nice. Dwayne, it's just you and me right now, and the listener. I could do. I could put a tack on Wes's chair. Oh, he's back. All right. There are seventeen 
There are about 15 kids in the hallway. Right Running now. around in the hallway. 15 all right. kids out there. And I was like, hey, we're recording in there. No, uh, no it's okay. They're, they're all right. I I've, was like, just go yell out there. Yeah. Outside. I've been in your hallway plenty of times. It's never been like fun. I don't know why anyone would consider it fun. I think they all just piled out of one, the oh, okay. room across the way. Well, that's all that's right. all right. I got to be an old man for once. It's like, get off my lawn, you yeah, kids. Yeah, get out of here, you kids. So anyways, you were saying. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um. So anyway, where was... Oh, yeah, so... Frank Whaley's character, Jim Dodge. Mm -hmm. He's chilling at the gas station. He's just been fired. You know, he's, we're establishing that he is this kind of pathological liar dude. And Josie pulls up in her hot car. Mm -hmm. He's trying to make himself look cool. He pops a cigarette in his mouth. He throws his glasses on. Right then, his dad, his sunglasses, I should say. His dad shows up and he's like, bruh, you got fired again. And it's clear his dad is this, you know, working class hero kind of guy. Just wants Jim to get a job and move out of his house because he's in his 20s already. Cut to dinner that night. Uh, you know, the family's around. We get to meet Jim's mom, whom I've always loved, even though she has maybe seven lines in this movie. Yeah, I like, recognized her. I just can't She's been in tons her. of stuff. I think she might have played... I think she might have played Doug's mom on, on King of Queens. I've uh, never watched King of Queens, I don't I th- think. Yeah, I feel like she was definitely like a mom to, you know, an adult sitcom character recently. Um, she was in the movie Devil, the one that M. Night Shyamalan produced oh, yeah, in the elevator. Yeah. She was one of the ladies in the elevator. Um, and so much stuff. She's been in tons of stuff. So, you know, Jim and the family are kind of having a little argument about how, like, you know, uh, Jim should move out. Jim doesn't really want to move out. He likes living with his family. He He's just fine with it. Blah, blah, blah. The next day, we see... uh, Oh, and also that night, Josie's at home. Her dad, her rich dad, is arguing with some other dudes who are trying to put some sort of of factory. An Asian car car An Asian car factory. A Japanese, he probably says. I think he said Japanese. I didn't want to just say Japanese because I wasn't sure. Japan's a place. No, it is. I just didn't know for sure if it was Japan or... Something. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's, I mean, we're talking... He didn't want it. Right after the 80s, yeah. He doesn't want this car factory being built in his towns. These guys are like, hey, man, it means jobs. He's the rich man. He doesn't have to care about other people's jobs. Josie comes in for the evening, and he's like, Josie, come here and meet my friends. She comes in, saunters up to the first dude, and just smacks him, kisses him right on the lips. Yep. And then goes to the second dude, and the second dude's kind of like, oh, boy, I'm about to get kissed by a 21-year-old girl here. And he tries to put on the charm. And she's just like, oh, pleasure to meet you. And she takes off. Cut to, she's in her bedroom that night. Her dad comes storming in. He's like, if you ever do that again, I'm going to, what, beat, beat the, the Dickens. Li- beat the, the living, living daylights out of you. daylights out of you. Beat a James Bond movie starring Timothy Dalton out of you. That's how mad he was. Yeah. And she alludes later in the movie that her dad has laid hands on her before. So here she is, the rich girl in town. Everybody loves her. Everybody thinks she's got it all made. She's got it all figured out. But... She's grown up in an abusive environment. Getting thrown around the room by her dad. Getting thrown around the room by her rich dad who thinks he's above the law. He is probably descendant from Paths of Glory's General Moreau. Miro. <laughs> Maybe. Something like that. I bet you. I bet there's a... A connection? A connection. Anyway, so now the next day rolls around. Jim has already gotten a new job as night cleanup boy at Target department stores. And we skipped a very important part, and that is that Jim has gone to interview for that job at Target. With John Candy. Being interviewed by none other than John Candy as Target 
manager cd yeah, marsh he, said he was the manager yeah uh, remember he there's a uh, manager of the month or year or something and his photos in the plaque that's correct yes so i pay attention john candy interviewing jim about a job and he's offering like he's offering him something like 45 grand a year yeah which for 1991 that's a pretty decent job sure, yeah when you're a 21 year old jim dodge that's a great salary it's soon revealed that jim doesn't know what job he's there for john candy thinks jim is a completely different person who's there to be like the operations manager yep. and it turns out john candy mr cd marsh is really interviewing Jim to be night cleanup boy. Then Jim makes the joke, well, I think I'm a little overpaid for night cleanup boy. And it turns out he's only going to get minimum wage. Like $4.43 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. It's, uh, it's a weird number. Yeah, four four forty seven an hour, two fifteen minutes and a half hour for lunch, something like that. Uh, then what happens? So then the next morning rolls around. Jim has rented a limousine to take him to work for his first night of work. Um, he shows up and this is where my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite moment in the movie, but it's just such a silly moment when he shows up and he looks at the target sign and it goes from saying target to Jim get. And I just always thought that was such a like simple joke. Cause it's like Jim's clearly management material. You know, he's not, he's not a great laborer, but he's definitely got management working in his brain like he's he's got his eyes open he's talking talks a lot he talks uh, he talks a great game at all times and he's paying attention but he's just not great about actually putting his hands to work yeah and here he is arriving at target to be the night cleanup boy and he's already got aspirations of taking over at the very least that target location <laughs> i that always just made me laugh so he goes in to work Spots a loose tile on the floor. Orders some kid that he's never met to have it fixed first thing in the morning. The kid's like, I don't know who the, who is that guy. That's a funny little moment. But there it is. Management material, right? Jim yeah. Dodge, he shouldn't be worrying about being a night cleanup boy. He should be applying to manage something somewhere. But what can you do? He's Jim Dodge. He's got hardly any aspirations at all. So now we meet William Forsythe's character, mm-hmm. the custodian. Yeah. The custodian. The head, the head custodian. The head custodian, yes. He is a ponytailed, hunting vest wearing, you know, Midwest, seemingly tough as nails kind of dude. And he is given, he's reading Jim the riot act about do this, don't do that when you're working here at this place. At gunpoint. At gunpoint. He's got a double barrel shotgun on him at one point. Uh, one of the first jokes is he asks, Are you a slacker? To which Jim says, no, sir, I'm Presbyterian. That always made me laugh. Yeah. Uh, and then he explains, okay, you got to do these tasks, this other task, these third tasks. And then he tells him things like, don't be eating stuff off the shelves. Um, <laughs> don't be a grazer. I like that. Yeah, one. yeah, don't where be he, a grazer. explain to him what grazing is. Right. Don't, don't graze food off the shelves and eat it around the store. And then, uh, so Jim's like, well, that's great. And he even says, like, this man's been abusing him verbally the whole way through, mm-hmm. you know. And then Jim's like, I tell you, though, I, I really have a good feeling about us working together. I can tell you're somebody I want to be around. And then the guy's like, I'm not working with you. Like, I'm going home to get laid and, you know, I'll be back in the morning. And uh, locks Jim in the store. Mm-hmm. Locked in a Target overnight with light in every third aisle. And uh, one last warning he gives Jim is stay out of the ladies' undergoods. 
Meaning, don't mess around with the ladies' underwear because that's creepy and gross, Jim. Which which informs us that probably that they've had an issue with right somebody with Darnell. Jim's wearing a jumpsuit that was that was uh, <laughs> worn by somebody else named Darnell. Uh, they allude to the idea that it's never been washed. That's always funny. So, Jim's all alone in the store. We get a close up on a big clock on the wall. The clock says nine p.m. And then we have a montage of Jim cleaning up all around the Target. He's sweeping, he's vacuuming, he's sweeping again, he's mopping, he's sweeping, he's waxing, he's doing God knows what else. And then <laughs> and then he's wheeling this big bin of trash out, and he looks at the clock, and it's only 9.17. Yeah. And that always cracked me up. Having worked graveyard shift, I can tell you, if you've ever had a job that you feel like time just drags on, no matter how much stuff you get done... Graveyard shift just makes it all worse because your body knows you're supposed to be asleep. Right. So Jim decides he's going to take a break. He's farting around the store. I think at this point we get a glimpse of the two criminals who were mentioned in the newspaper very early in the movie. Yeah. We see those two criminals happen upon a station wagon that's up on Lover's Lane somewhere. They drag the two people out and they steal their car. Right. So now back to Jim in the store. We hear from his parents once in a while. His dad's having a hard time sleeping because Jim's not at home, you know, nestled snug in his bed with visions of sugar plums and what have you. And that's something I really um, kind of liked was this whole thing with the dad. Yeah, because um, the dad's so hard on him about, yeah. get out of my house. I want you out of my house. And now here it is, his first night away, essentially. Well, and there's a moment between the two of – between um, the dad and Jim um, when he's – taking him to interview for the job and yeah. Jim's like I get the feeling that you don't like being around me very or you don't like me very much and he's yeah. like it's not that I don't like you I just don't want you in my house right right, you know? right. and uh, I don't know I thought there was something like kind of endearing about the sentiment right that, you know earlier it was kind of like when you first meet his dad and his dad's grabbing him by the collar and kind of jerking him around and stuff and right. giving him a hard time at dinner um, I actually commented to you I was like man it seems like John Hughes had issues with his dad or something because dads tend to be a little too tough yeah in uh in john hughes movies um but that moment sort of like was the first sign that there's something endearing about jim's dad right and then now where you're at where the dad gets up in the middle of the night and he opens up the fridge <laughs> yeah, eats uh fried chicken dipped in, in peanut, peanut butter. butter he like he like <laughs> rolls it around the peanut butter um again there's just like this thing where it's like this guy isn't quite the hard ass that he's purported to be right he's been he's been being hard on jim because for some reason he thinks that's what's necessary yeah but we see he's actually quite the softy and he really misses his son now yeah and 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 he sort of alludes to that with his wife Mm -hmm. you know maybe i should have been harping less and trying to be a better like example for yeah yeah what is it maybe i should yeah Uh, maybe i did too much harping and not enough helping yeah yeah, good old Jim's dad. Bud Dodge, uh, good man. Bud Dodge. Bud, uh, <laughs> concrete contractor. Um, so Jim's skating around in the store. He's roller skating in the store in his underwear with a bridal veil on. And goes by this one aisle and sees Josie just standing there looking at him. And he's kind of, for a second, he does a double take. And he's like, there's no way I saw that. Yeah. Couldn't be. Comes around another corner and she's standing right in front of him. And does he crash into? No, he 
skirts around her and he then skates cr- backwards. And then yeah, skates backwards and crashes into a big pantyhose display. A legs display. A legs. It's funny because I remember when I was a kid, those legs like they came in a the little egg. They come in an egg. Yeah. What else could you want from anything? Yeah. Who wouldn't want Mork arrived in an egg? Yeah. Sure. Easter candy comes in eggs. Why wouldn't you want your pantyhose out of an egg? I don't know. Do, do they still sell that? Do, are legs still a thing? I really don't know. Ladies, if you're listening, please tweet at Stephen Nohowood or at uh, Movie Hippo. <laughs> and let us know. And let us know if legs are still on sale anywhere. Yeah. Legs, I'm they come in an egg. So it turns out Jim was not imagining things. Josie McClellan, most p- beautiful girl in town, is indeed locked in the Target with him overnight. What's a guy to do? So they start talking. They start getting to know each other. It's revealed that they've essentially known each other since, like, kindergarten. Well, known of each other since kindergarten, but they never really got to know each other. Um, So they're having some dinner together. Jim's talking about how, you know, the whole popular kids versus uh, dorks and nerd kids. That always really bothered him. Um, I believe he refers to himself as a doink quite a few times. A doink. Which I always thought was funny that they... You know, this movie, it wasn't the most popular movie ever, but, like, they set that aside. Because in school, there were definitely, you know, whether we knew it or not, there were doinks. And I feel like the doinks were the kids who certainly got picked on as much as, like, nerds might have gotten picked on. Mm -hmm. But the doinks maybe weren't quite as, like, smart as the nerds and maybe not as, like, obsessed with... You know, technology and science fiction and learning and whatnot as the nerds. It's almost like the doinks were just kids who clearly weren't cut out for sports, but also weren't all that well cut out for academics. They just didn't really fit. Yeah, and so they were just the doinks, you know, the freaks and geeks kind of, you know. Just here we are. We're going to take the same amount of heat as the nerds, but we won't even get as good grade as as the nerds. Yeah. So there you have it. Doinks, I guess. Um so they're going on and on about the us and them, this and that. And it's revealed that Josie is thinking about, you know, how she's uh, she's got to get away from her dad. Her dad's rich. He's abusive. He thinks he's above the law. She's got to get away from him. Now, watching the movie this time, I realized for the first time hmm. that I think Josie was planning this all along in a way. Because the reason she's in the store is she went to the store to shoplift so she could get arrested so she could embarrass her father. Sure. But she chickened out while she was tucking things under her clothes in a fitting room. She chickened out. She sat down to think about it. She wound up falling asleep. So when the store closed, nobody came in to, uh, nobody noticed that she was in there sleeping. Yeah. So is there any way we can pull that shut? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm getting, getting cooked blinded. right now. Oh, he's getting cooked. Wes's, uh, apartment has a sun magnifier built into it. Um, Basically, because I think Wes once had supervillain aspirations, and I think he's now decided to remain a good guy. But I was just getting cooked by the sun, thanks so to, the, to the sun magnifier. Well, we'll sort it out. I'll turn some lights on. Let's see here. How do we turn uh, one I, of those I on? I got that. I got that. So, um, yes. Yeah, so Josie was looking to get arrested and embarrass her father, and she chickened out. But she's got a bit of a backup plan, because she tells Jim, I think... We should just run away together somewhere. Let's just go somewhere, start a new life, work, and just be our own people. Be independent of our parents. I'm going to disagree with you on she had a plan. You don't think so? Nah. 
Well, let's 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 divulge the plan though. Okay. Because Jim's like, well, where do we go? She's like, I don't know, Los Angeles. Okay, not a big deal. Lots of people come to Los Angeles for exactly those reasons. But then she says, I've got $52,000 in my purse. And then it shows Jim counting it out. And he's like, wow, $52,000. So you're saying that's premeditation? Certainly. You know what? I think think that um, she was prepared for the moment that that could happen. But I don't think she left this night planning this. But I think when she saw Jim and realized there's... This doink that I've known since kindergarten, who's in a very similar situation for me, to a similar situation to me, I bet I could talk him into it. Now I'm starting to feel bad for Jim, even though I know the end of the movie. Well, I don't feel bad for Jim. Well, I mean, Cause I, he tells her he doesn't want to go. He tells her he doesn't want to move out of the house, and she's like, yeah, you do. She, she goes to, about from the very beginning trying to convince him that he's unhappy. See what I'm saying? So and the very first time, so she finds a mark, is what you're saying. Sort of, yeah. But so also, that makes me feel bad for Jim. Well, but all, but I don't think she's looking for a mark necessarily. I think she's looking for. I need to find somebody who's who's spontaneous enough to do this with me. You know, because I because I feel like very soon into their interaction in the target, she's being very seductive. She's being sure. very you know persuasive about. Getting him to realize he's a man now. He's in his early 20s. Well, she it's, lets him see her. Yeah. It's time to get away from home. It's time to, you know, step into adulthood. And so, so, and there's just like, there's a lot of just little like glances between them and lingering looks and stuff like that where I'm like, she's seducing him, whether she even knows it or not. But I don't think she slept in the target specifically. No, 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 not point. at all. Okay. Not, right. not, not premeditated to that point. Right. But I'm saying, I think she's when, been waiting for the opportunity. Yeah. I'm think once she, re, I'm thinking once she reveals herself to Jim, she gets the idea of like, well, I do have enough money for us to comfortably run away. Yeah. I believe that. I buy that. And Jim might be just gaga enough over me to right. go along. Right. I buy that. And so that makes me sad for Jim still a little bit, but Jim needs it. Jim needs, does he, he needs a fire lit under his butt. You know what I'm saying? Because if he's 21 and he's happy being night cleanup boy at Target, which he's clearly not happy being because he sure. keeps – every time he cleans the store, he messes it up again going roller skating or what have you. Fair enough. Um, so it's like – so I think he I think he subconsciously knows that he needs a bigger kick in the pants than just a new job. And I think Josie knows that she could very easily persuade him into basically you know being her road buddy if not boyfriend. Well, then we get to a very fun moment mm-hmm. because Josie asks, you know, Jim, is there anything I can do to make it up to you for being so cold to you all those years through it's school? My, my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. It's a beautiful moment. And Jim Dodge, the town liar says, well, there was a moment in like seventh grade, I think mm-hmm. when uh, we were out of the seventh grade, was it seventh grade homecoming? He says homecoming. He says homecoming. But then he also says seventh grade. Maybe that happened. I'm not sure. Maybe I imagined seventh grade. I don't know. Anyway, a homecoming dance where this lady gym teacher made all the boys and girls switch dancing partners because, as he says, uh, all the chubby girls were dancing together and all the doinks, myself included, were standing on the wall blowing spit bubbles. And so this gym teacher, she made everybody come in and start dancing and then she would make them switch throughout the song 
And he says, for three quarters of one verse of a slow song, Josie, you and I dance together. And he says something like, and I've often dreamed of finishing that dance. And then Josie is like 100% just like touched, you know, as I think anybody would be. Yeah. She's totally flattered. And then she says, like, I really thought you were going to say something else. going to ask for something else. Yeah. yeah cause she, and I think she wants him to. Because, you know, at the very least, she knows that that will further ensnare him into well, she her has, plan. She, they sort of have established that she has no problem uh, giving her body away. Right. Because... When they have he, the town liar argument. Yeah, and he said, she says, what do they call me? And he says, uh, they call you a tease. And she's like, oh, that's fair. Well, yeah. I technically don't tease. Yeah, she's like, no, actually, I've never teased. Yeah. And it's like, so what she's saying is she always delivers. Yeah. That's pretty intense. For a twenty-one-year-old girl to admit about herself, yeah, a twenty-one-year-old of any of any gender well, to got, admit anything she's about got some issues. sure she does. You know, Josie McClellan is not without issues. Um, so they go; they have this beautiful slow dance in the uh, in the tropical fish section of the Target because mm-hmm. apparently those exist. I've never been to a Target with a tropical fish section. Well, you know, it was the early nineties. Yeah. I wonder if that was the first target. Ever. I mean, I remember going to as a kid going to Walmart, mm-hmm. and they had a they had a a fish section. They had a, like a little pet section. Okay, in Walmart. All right. So, guys, if you ever find yourself working as night cleanup boy, trapped in the store with a beautiful girl, the fish section—that's pet fish, not fish to eat, not frozen fish, not frozen fish. The fish tank section is the place to have a slow dance. So they're having this beautiful slow dance. Cut to them in a tent. Well, they kiss in, the, in that slow dance. Oh, yeah, they do kiss in, they the, kiss slow in the slow dance. They kiss. Jim's wanted this his whole life. I think Josie is falling for him, although also kind of manipulating him into her runaway plan. And then it cuts to them in a tent that's high up on a shelf, which seems and is very dangerous. Um, they're up there. You, we can tell by the noises being made that they're fooling around. They're giggling. Yeah, they're giggling. Um and then the we see outside the Target, a police car pulls up, and it's the sheriff. He's driving around with Josie's dad because Josie's dad is called in saying Josie is missing. So the sheriff walks up to the door of the Target, bangs on it with his flashlight. Jim and Josie in their tent fall down from the top shelf, which looks terrifying to me. I don't like heights, and I specifically don't like blindly falling from heights. Wes, what about you? Um, not a big fan. No. Me either, man. So, Jim runs out there. The sheriff is at the window, and he's like, let me in, Jim. Jim explains that he can't. Sheriff says, well, I'm looking for Josie McClellan. My guess is she's probably just off somewhere. Uh, what is it? She's probably off somewhere like... Screwing some guy her father wouldn't approve of. Screwing some guy her father wouldn't approve of. And we cut to Jim's face, and he's very plainly just thinking like, well, she's screwing me, and yeah, her fa- father probably wouldn't approve of me right now. Yeah. And then the sheriff just starts laughing, and Jim realizes, oh, I better start laughing. That's fun. So while Jim and the sheriff are having this conversation at the door, we see the two criminals peeking around the side of the building. Casing the joint. Casing the joint. Casing the Jim get. The sheriff leaves. He takes Josie's dad with him. He makes a remark to Josie's dad about how he was giving Jim some psychological help or something yeah. like that. So basically the whole town knows that Jim, A, is the town liar, and B, you know, uh, everybody seems to think they need to mentally help Jim. And that's strange. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if small towns, are they that close anymore? Were they back then? I don't know. So now, Josie and... Yes, Josie and Jim back in the Target. They're done having sex. As far as we're concerned, they're in love with each other. They're roller skating around, having a great time, listening to a beautiful song. Now, the criminals are inside. Josie and Jim skate right into their guns, smack themselves in the face. They manage to knock the criminals unconscious for a minute. They run off and hide, but they forget to take their guns. This is where the trouble really starts. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand that. Why didn't they grab the guns? I don't know either. Well, my guess is maybe just the two of them, they're probably not very criminally inclined at all. So maybe it just never occurred to them to try to get it's, the guns. It's, it's two moments that, that didn't sit well with me. Both okay. revolved around their guns. One is this moment. And the other one is the uh, not loaded moment. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there very quickly. Mm-hmm. So now Josie and Jim are hiding in a fitting room. Um, the criminals wake up. They're looking around for them. They eventually find them. They've got Josie and Jim on the floor, lying face down, and Jim starts explaining, hey, you idiots, this is not just a night cleanup boy and a pretty girl locked in a Target together. And he starts in one of his famous Jim lies. He starts Mm -hmm. in with, uh, this. you guys stumbled into the middle of, I think he said a $60 million drug transaction, which is... A lot. I would have believed six, maybe even sixteen. A sixty million dollar drug transaction. That's that's a big transaction. Can so point out, um, point out that Dermot Mulroney is one of the uh, criminals. I'm going to point out two things. Yeah. The two criminals, Gail and Nestor. Mm-hmm. No, Gil and Nestor mm-hmm. are played by Dermot Mulroney mm-hmm. and his brother Kieran Mulroney. Mm, interesting. Yet in the movie, they are not playing brothers. That's weird. Kieran Mulroney plays Gil. Dermot Mulroney plays Nestor, who is a very creepy, very sweaty kind of... Well, I can't make fun of anybody for being sweaty. But, you know, like, Dermot Mulroney usually plays very well put together, smart... He does now. Men of money. Yeah. He tends to play those kind of characters. So I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, to see him as just this greasy, you know, not even all that stylish... I mean, he's wearing, like... He's wearing a members-only jacket, but then, like, big woolly gloves with the fingers cut off, and then shoes that, like, have no business being on anybody's feet. And then he's just got this really greasy hair and these really crazy mutton chops. Um, and he's just, he's a total character. And then his brother, uh, Kieran, is just kind of a normal dude. He's wearing kind of a rugby sweater and jeans. Um, so they're a really odd pair as a, as a, as a, uh, a criminal team. Uh, I should point out that Kieran Mulroney is also the double dip guy from Seinfeld. Okay. The uh, Have you never watched the you've, – you've seen sure all seen of it. Seinfeld, right? Sure. But the guy who's like, you don't double dip. not a TV podcast, sir. That's true. But my point is there's a famous moment from Seinfeld. Yeah. And that's Kieran Mulroney saying, it's like you're putting your whole mouth in the bowl. You dip your chip, you took a bite, and then you dipped again. You get it. Mm-hmm. That guy in this movie, Dermot Mulroney's real-life brother. So – they get the drop on Jim and Josie. Jim starts in on one of his lies about how you're the, uh, you're, you've stumbled into this drug deal. Jim manages to con these two men into uh, almost killing Josie. And then right before they do, he manages to snatch one of the guns away, then get both of their guns away. And he's like, forget about it. They're here. There's, uh, there's a laser scope trained on you right now. There's snipers in the building. You guys are dead meat. I told you to get out of here. He gets them down on their bellies. 
He's telling them, you know, he's got both guns on him. He's like, you guys, all right, this is, you know, I fooled you. He's like, I got some, I got some bad news for you. Yeah, that's right. I've got some bad news for you. And then Dermot Moroni's like, well, we got bad news for you too. Those guns aren't loaded. This is the, this is the other moment I have a problem with. Yes. Why? Um, because he, I have a problem with it too. Because he hands the gun over. He's like, you oh. never hand a gun he's back like, to somebody. He's like, okay, well, it's it's unloaded here. Well, we're maybe we can just call it even. Um, and oh, the ice cream man's outside. Hey, I hope you guys hear that. Uh, yeah. So he he hands the guns back over, and then of course the guys prove that the guns are loaded. Right. In reality, and it's like, no. Why couldn't Jim have tested the gun? Why couldn't he have look, looked in? One of them was a revolver. He could have seen that there was bullets without having to open it. I mean, one was just a, a uh, big revolver. One was a little. It looked almost what's that? A Walther PPK? Yeah, it might have been. It was something small like something that. Something like that. And uh, yeah, Jim handing the guns back has always been a sticking point for me with this movie. Yeah. So there's two moments with guns. Yeah. With these guns that where he could have taken the gun and didn't. Right. And then. Had the gun and gave it back without, without. I mean, he just believed these guys right away. I mean, he's a con man. You'd think he would know not to believe other people. Well, he's a liar. He's okay. a pathological liar. So you'd think he would know not to trust other people. Maybe, but see, he lies about like fantasy stuff. You know, like yeah. how everybody everybody keeps saying, "Oh, have you have you seen jo- Josie McClellan?" And he's like, "Yeah, we had a cup of Java yesterday." Right. When really all he did was ogle her at the gas station. Yeah. But even like in his own brain, he's fantasized about having this cup of Java. But yes, trusting them to enough to give the guns back is a huge mistake. But then again, Jim's not exactly a criminal, so what can you do? You know, it's like I can. I can sort of believe that he would give the guns back. Because also, what's probably going through his mind is, well, these two men can definitely beat me up if yeah, I'm just like, standing here holding unloaded guns. It's like, just keep the gun trained on him if, and just be like, well, let's find out. If you get up and charge me, I'm going to fire the gun and we'll find out. If they stay on the ground, the guns are really loaded. You and I know that. Yeah, it's just, it's just bad movie logic. That's, yeah. That's bad writing. A little bit. But you know how many movies that happens in? Too many, and it's, it's darn sort near of, all of them. No, I don't want to say all of them. Lots. I would say I think, it's a problem of the, I think it's a problem of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I would say 99% of movies, especially from that era, have some piece of bad logic. It's like, you know, so many. How many movies have you seen where, where let's say the argument is, uh, don't get on the plane? Why not? Because, you know, uh, there's gonna, somebody's going to throw a stink bomb in there. And really, all that happens in the movie is like, don't get on the plane. And the other person's like, why not? And the other guy's just like, just trust me, man. Don't. And the other guy goes, oh, man, you're always telling me what to do and gets on the plane. And it's like there are so many move, movie moments mm-hmm. with bad writing and, like, people who for every reason should be communicating and just aren't that – to point out this – you're throwing a match on a fire. You so, know what I mean? Uh, Roger Ebert had a, a, a phrase of terminology for this. All right. It's called, it's called an idiot plot. An idiot plot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where um, something can be easily solved mostly by two people just communicating with each other. I agree with that. And that happens a lot. Sure. And it drives me nuts. Yeah. So anyways, carry well, on. Uh, so, he, so he gets the guns, hands them over. The bad guys fire the guns to show that they are really in control. Correct. Bad news bears. However... They also make a mistake mm-hmm. because they're not really staying right on top of Jim and Josie. Mm-hmm. So we cut to Jim and Josie walking seemingly alone down the aisles of Target. And then we see that the two criminals, Gil and Nestor, are kind of back behind them, maybe 15-ish feet, keeping an eye on them. But why not just tie them up and keep them out of the way, you know? 
And Josie's like, I think I've got a plan. I'm going to offer to ride away with them. And then I'm going to try to trick them, steal their car and come back and get you because we need a car. If we're going to go to Los Angeles, Jim's like, that's crazy. But I think he also sees there aren't a whole lot of options. So Josie's like, just go along with whatever I do. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if Jim even entirely agrees with her in that moment, but he starts to go along with it. So gosh, what happens from there? They go and have corn dogs. They go and have corn dogs. There's the infamous uh, Josie McClellan riding on a uh, a coin-operated uh, horse. Yeah, I want to give a shout-out to my friend Peter who said, watch out for the scene. Oh, another one of the people that said I fell in love with Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. was in this film, and he said, all I'm going to say is Jennifer Connelly riding on a bouncy horse. Riding on a bouncy horse. Um, and it's not even all that, like, dirty of a scene. No, I mean it's. I mean, I but get, it, I get it. It's suggestive. But yeah, there's definitely a, a suggestive, seductive thing going on. To She's me, seducing the criminals. To me, the best part is when she asks that guy to hop on the back. Yeah, and he yeah. tries to get on, and it slips off. Yeah, slips right down off the tail. That's that's funny. Oh yeah. Oh, I love this movie. So, basically, Josie is now conning these two, saying like, "Why do I, What would I want to stay here with Jim for? You know, let's clean this place out." They go on a big shopping montage. They're stealing, like, free weights and stereo equipment. Fishing poles. Fishing poles, a mannequin butt. Stuffed animals. Stuffed animals. Like, they're just stealing all this crazy stuff. There's the funny gag with the condoms and then the shoe uh, cushions. Yeah. Um, Stealing all this stuff. So then it gets to they're loading up their car. And Jim's like, if you guys think I'm going to help you load your cars, you can forget it. This is stolen property. You need to put this back in the target. And they're like, you're going to help us load the cars. And then Josie shows up with her own shopping cart full of stolen goods and breaks Jim's heart. And Jim's looking at her and he's saying, like, you know, you don't have to go with these guys, blah, blah, blah. She's like, no, Jim, I'm going to go with them. You know, like, shut up. What'd she say? She says, like, don't be an ass or something like that. Yeah, she tells him not to be an ass. So they drive away. No. No, you're right. Why do I always think How they drive away? How dare you? Why do I, I this always, is your movie. I always think they drive away. No. Josie gets in the car, steals it from those while guys. While they're loading the back. While they're loading in the back. She drives the car away. So now Jim's left alone in the Target with these two jerks. But. While they're outside still. Yeah, they're still outside. He gets inside, mm-hmm. goes into the head custodian's office, played by William Forsyth. Let's hear it for him. <laughs> Opens his locker, and sure enough, there's the double-barrel shotgun that he'd been pointing in Jim's face at the start of the night shift. What else is in that thar closet, Wes? Uh, there's a poster. Poster, and plenty of shotgun shells. Oh, yeah, yeah, he grabs plenty of ammo. So Jim is now armed with, I would say, buckshot at the very least. Yeah. He's got himself a double-barrel shotgun, plenty of shotgun shells. The dudes break back into the target... Jim is hiding. He's making an announcement over the PA. Luring them to him. Luring them to come get him. He's doing his same monologue from the beginning about how that wasn't a a random murder. That was a mafia hit. I should know. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They show up to where he is. They think they've got the drop on him. And then when they pop out, he's got the shotgun in both of their faces. Yeah. And then we have a nice little moment of him just blasting through this wall. And then it just kind of cuts to dawn. Um, The sun's up. 
we see Jim walking to the door of the Target. Josie's waiting for him around front with mm-hmm. a suitcase in her hand, which yeah. I don't think she needs at all. No, she's got the car. She's got the whole car. The car, yeah, right behind her in the suitcase. I'm not sure why she's holding that suitcase. Well, I have a theory. But, yeah. But go ahead. Well, you go ahead. I think they leave the car with all the goods. Oh. With the exception of some items that she keeps in a suitcase that they've stolen. Not and that's bad. her suitcase to... to hit the road but i don't think because i was thinking about that i was like well so did jim did jim and uh josie steal all the stuff from target and that per- poor person's stolen car like do they drive a stolen car from one side of the country to the other like i, I don't know i don't buy it and the answer is no because then it cuts to them in jim's limousine from the day before right the funeral home limousine driving them through town uh that doesn't mean they took a limousine to, to la though no but i'm i assume it took them to the airport Maybe. My guess is they probably went, met up with the limousine guy, got to the airport pretty quick without telling the parents too much. Um, And then it cuts back to the Target, and the sheriff has now returned to the Target. He's snooping around inside. He's got his gun drawn and tied up practically with a bow on them are the two criminals, (laughs) Nestor and Gil. Uh, They seem to be tied into lawn chairs using a bunch of dog leashes and dog harnesses. They have, like, dog... Like yeah, harnesses, muzzle. muzzles over their faces. They yeah. look like something out of a, a pretty good S&M video. Or, yeah, Hannibal <laughs> Lecter. That's what I meant. Um, and Jim has even st- uh, taped the newspaper articles about their criminal, uh, you know, m- misgivings, misadventures to their chests as mm-hmm. they're tied to these chairs. Yep. And then, yeah, then uh, Jim and Josie, uh, you know, we see them ride through town. We see Jim pop out of the limousine so he can show off in front of these younger kids that he's always lying to throughout the throughout the neighborhood, telling all his fanciful stories. He gets back in the limousine. They see Josie. They see how beautiful she is. He gets back in the limousine, takes off. The little nerdy kid with the glasses is like, that guy's so cool. Then what happens, Wes? They, they end up in Hollywood. Right. Cut to Jim and Josie, poolside, somewhere in Hollywood. Jim... Looks out over the pool, way up on the mountain. He sees the big white Hollywood sign. And what does he do? He, see, he, he gets his new aspirations. Right. And he imagines the sign saying... Jim Wood. Jim Wood. And as a resident of Jim Wood, that's always tickled me quite a bit, that moment there. Jim Wood. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. Yeah. That's... Two kids, you know, who kind of from opposite sides of the track, they finally come together... They probably fall in love. Sure, why not? And they run away to start a nice new life together. Yeah. We assume. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty good. I'm glad I saw it. Uh, I, I see what you and others see in it. Um, it, to me, lacks uh, what a lot of other John Hughes films have. It just doesn't Ducky? Have, that ducky. It doesn't have a ducky. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have a ducky. It doesn't have a Brian. But in a way, Jim is the ducky. You can assume no, but see, Ducky, Jim and Ducky would have been friends. When you look at like they Brian from um, from Breakfast Club and Ducky. Those are characters that aren't very confident, mm-hmm. and Jim has confidence confidence in spades. Yes, and that's that's sort of and and in some ways it almost makes Jim unlikable. Oh, really? Yeah, I, for me, All right. um, this is just me talking. Um, what makes what saves Jim for me is that scene where he's with Josie and and. She says, "You can ask a favor." Yeah, that's that's the scene where um, Jim becomes likable to me. All right, because he could have, and he knows he could have. Yeah, 
you know. See, I've always liked Jim. I always feel like though, um, you know, it's his his confidence comes from his ability to lie to be a good BS artist. Yeah, he's great at that, for better or worse, mostly yeah. for worse. Um, but it, but he's never malicious with it. Like, ever, you know? It's always just like, oh, yeah, sure, I know all about that, or I know all about this. But he never lies to ever, like, get anything from anybody. He just lies to just kind of, to just try to impress people yeah, because, another life. because he doesn't really have confidence. He's well, got false he, confidence. And he doesn't lie to Josie. Not really. I mean, like... Yeah, pretty much. Per, like, when they have their dinner of uh, the chicken... Yeah. Um, ...out of the microwave... There she is. They have uh, they have this conversation where he's like, he just flat out tells her, like, I've had dreams about you. Right. You know, like, typically dudes don't say that to women right. that, they've, that they've fawn over, you know? Yeah, not if they want to keep the initial conversation yeah. going, that's so for sure. He's, and and he, he talks about how he's the liar and how... Uh, well, no, she calls him out on it. Yeah, but, I he, but, he admits it, but he admits it when he realizes that people are indeed talking about it and he kind yeah. of obsesses over it. He admits it and he's like, I'm the liar. I work in, I work in Target. You know, I'm the cleanup boy. Um, and he's like, Reverend Harlow gave me the finger. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like he, he tells all of these sort of like things that should be just embarrassing um, because it seems like she's the only person he doesn't lie to. Right. Um, so I don't know. Um, I, I like that part of Jim. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. But I like the movie. I thought it was fun. It, it, it's, if anything else, it's short and it's fun. Yeah, it's short and it's fun. Um, I'll say one flat out drawback to the movie is that it doesn't really have any like big hilarious moments. Right. Um, but I think part of the reason I love it so much is because I like movies where there's a lot of really tiny jokes that you have to really be paying attention to in order to get, you know? Um, and I feel like this movie has quite a few of those. And, and so that's part of why I put it in the bucket. Cause it's like, you know, here we are 24 years later and this movie is like, you know, it's on some people's favorite list. Sure. But it's, it's more of one of those movies. It's the kind of movie like I try to keep alive, you know? Sure. Nobody needs me to tell them to see Jaws. Right. But well, some people apparently, but some people apparently, but it's like movies like career opportunities are movies that like, you know, they're, they've got something to offer, but just history is not really sure. Keeping them around all that. Well. If, if I had to choose like another, like if somebody said, we're going to watch a John Hughes movie. All right. Which one do you want to pick? You, you pick career opportunities would probably be at the bottom of the list for me. Yeah. Um, wait a minute. This, this is not very, this is not a very quotable film you know i mean like the things that we sort of love about john hughes movies is yeah um they're usually not exactly an ensemble cast but a lot of times i mean ferris bueller i, I don't know if i could go so far as to call it an ensemble cast but it's a trio cast but well but i mean you know you've got the principal and you've got a sister as well that play a pretty important, charlie sheen important role in there charlie sheen plays mom and a, dad yeah they're not that f- prevalent in the film but i ran really into ferris bueller's dad somewhere recently okay and i forget where and I forget why I didn't talk to him, but I just remember looking and being like, yeah. "Holy moly, that's Ted Bueller." I don't remember his first name. But if I had to, if I had to choose between this and Breakfast Club, there's yeah. no, there's no doubt that I choose Breakfast Club. See, I would go this. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because you blow my mind, man. Breakfast Club is a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost 
a little too depressing for my taste. Really? Whereas, I, I think I think it's a beautiful movie. I think it's very positive at the end of the film. Sort of yes and sort of no. They all like oh. they all like find like who they're supposed to be, you know? Like they're yeah. all lab- they're all labeled at something and then they like are empowered by that by the end of the film. Yeah, but then I mean isn't there kind of the double standard of like, oh, Ali Sheedy gets to date the jock now because she took the beauty queen's advice, you know, that sort of thing? Because she had a friend to give her advice, I think is the point. Maybe that's it. Okay. All right. Well, I would go with this still, probably because I've just seen Breakfast Club so very many times. And while I've seen this so very many times, it's still just kind of a more positive, happier movie in general. Here's let's 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 put this out to the listeners. All right. All right. Tweet at us and hashtag either Breakfast Club or hashtag Career Opportunities. Which movie would you prefer to watch? Nice. Okay. Now. Of the John Hughes movies. Besides Breakfast Club. Yeah. Which one do you absolutely want to watch? Ferris Bueller. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because Matthew Broderick is 100% likable in it. He's also a con man. But he's likable from the very, very beginning of the film. Yeah. Um, You want to be Ferris the whole film. Right. Um, And he gets gets the girl. Yeah. Um, Ferris Bueller is almost a male... Josie McClellan. Well, not really, but he's definitely a rich kid, but he's also not exactly abusing his power. Like, he's getting over on the adults, but he's the hero to all the kids. I would say he's he's a rich kid. Like, he, Ferris grew up, lived in a house in a neighborhood that, for, for my youth, we would have considered the rich neighborhood. Absolutely, yeah. I would call him a rich kid. Yeah, I agree. I'm agreeing. Oh, I thought you, you were saying you wouldn't call him. A, oh, no, a I would kid. say he definitely is. But but then there's also the uh, the joke of, you know, uh, I asked for a car. I got a computer. How's that for being born under a bad sign? But we're not here to talk about the greatness of Ferris Bueller. Everybody knows that. We're here to talk about career opportunities. Well, let's well, let's let's ex- let's examine John Hughes real quick. OK, um, let me let me switch over to writer. Well, you do that. Can I tell you a fun fact about Frank Whaley? Yeah, I would love to hear a fun fact about it. So there's a movie floating around out there called Drillbit Taylor, right? Right. I've I had the it. pleasure. I've seen it too. I was on set a lot. We don't have to put, oh, that's For fancy. that movie. I had the pleasure. I don't know if I want to say pleasure. No, I'm kidding. Um, I used to bodyguard for a young child actor. Not all that young. He was 14 at the time. Something Somewhere around there. Anyway, I would have to join him on set while he was playing the teenage lead in Drillbit Taylor. Now, he was a young go-getter. He's still a young go-getter. He was an even younger go-getter back then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm an aspiring actor. And so he was like, Steve, there's this part in the script. And he's like, and, you know, I'm a kid. I don't have any pull whatsoever. But I'm going to see if I can get you an audition for it. And I'm like, dude, that would be the coolest thing anybody's ever done. That's so awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, long story short, he couldn't. Because he's just a kid. And this is a movie being made with a lot of very powerful men. Drillbit Taylor, by the way, started out as a John Hughes movie. Mm. But uh, I'm not exactly sure how it went. I mean, Hughes has passed away. He got rest his soul. It wound up in the hands of uh, Chris Brown and Seth Rogen. They turned it into Drillbit Taylor. How about that? Anyway, that role in Drillbit Taylor that the kid was trying to get me a role, uh, uh, an audition for, wound up being played by... Frank Whaley? Frank Whaley. Isn't that something? Yeah. 
So yeah, when I saw when I heard, uh, you know, Nate came and he was like, "Oh man, they they already cast that role. They gave it to this guy Frank Whaley," and I was just like, "That's the greatest." outcome i could have ever heard for that situation other than steve you know what don't even audition just come in and play the part the idea that it went to the guy who played jim dodge absolutely warmed my heart i loved it and it's a pretty funny part of the movie too yeah i liked it you've got something there i got some john hughes movies here national lampoon's vacation yeah all of them all of them uh he he, i think they even credited him for characters cool the new one mr mom with Michael Keaton. I did not know he was involved with that. Wrote it. Wrote it. 16 Candles. Breakfast Club. Weird Science. Oh, yeah. Pretty in Pink. Ferris Bueller. Some Kind of Wonderful. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. The Wait, gra- did he? Wrote it. I'm, I'm looking at his Those writing credits. writing, okay. The Great Outdoors. Oh, yeah. Uncle Buck. Absolutely. Home Alone. Fun. There's something about those films that this doesn't quite... Sure. I would never have guessed this was a John Hughes movie. Not in a million years. Not in a million years. Not in a million years would I have guessed. Not based on the soundtrack, based on the similarity thing with like the, the nerdy kid who's, you know, having trouble with women, that sort of thing. Can I? No, can, I mean, it doesn't take place in the same town as like. That's true. It's Freddy's not a Club Sherman, or, Illinois. Yeah. So, I mean, does it even take place in Illinois? I, does, no, they never even say. St. Louis. So St. I guess Louis, Missouri. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing really John Hughesy about the All film right. to me. Um, All right. Movie that you love that came out the same year? Yeah. Dutch. I love Dutch. And there's some, some heart. And I love this. There's some heart in Dutch that I feel like doesn't quite. Interesting. There's just something missing from this movie. However, going yeah. back to what I said before, fun movie, worth a watch. Fun movie, worth a watch. Yeah. Roller skating. Jim Gett. Jennifer Connelly on a mechanical horse. The Mulroney Brothers. <laughs> John Candy. Um, so you had pointed out earlier that you looked up a piece of trivia and you didn't read too deep into it because you didn't want to spoil anything. Yeah. Uh, I actually looked up that same piece of trivia. So what was it? So in Germany, this movie was released. <laughs> this movie was not released as Career Opportunities, named after the famous song by The Clash. Mm-hmm. This movie was released in Germany with the title uh, <laughs> Kevin's Cousin. Let me think of how to pronounce it. Kevin's cousin alone in supermarket, which I'm guessing means Kevin's cousin alone in a supermarket. Now, alone in the supermarket, if I'm not mistaken, is also a Clash song, okay. much like career opportunities. But basically, they were trying to tie in the idea that Jim Dodge is somehow Kevin McAllister's cousin from Home Alone, from Home Alone, just because of the John Hughes connection. Oh, that's and funny. I think that is hilarious. Well, and it makes it makes the uh, John Candy, the inexplicable John Candy scene, also make sense, right? Because it's like, why else is he in this movie? Why not? Yeah. If I had to cast a Target manager and John Candy was still walking the earth, he's hired. There is there is some type of similarity, some sort of similar feel with the uh, Gill and uh, what's his name, the Nestor, Nestor Gill and Nestor um, to the uh, the Wet Bandits. <laughs> there is there is some some type of similarity going on there. The wet bandits. Or the, even the sticky, the sticky bandits. bandits yeah. Were they sticky in one or two? They were sticky in two, right? They were sticky in two, I think, yeah. Those guys. Marv and Harv? Harv and what were their names? I don't remember. There was definitely a Marv or a Harv. Sure. 
Oh, Home Alone. Well, anyway, the movie was Career Opportunities. You can still find it. It's on HBO Go right now. Should we draw from the Muppet Bucket? It's time to draw from the Muppet Bucket. Yeah, we've, we've exhausted all the Career Opportunities that we can exhaust. <laughs> Jennifer Connelly on a uh, mechanical horse. Mix these You're up. drawing first, No, eh? no, no. You, oh, okay. you always draw first. I'm just mixing them up here. Let me close out my notes. All right, here you go. I'm reaching over. I'm getting oh, really close to the all microphone. Right. Let me go under. Here, reach over. There you go. All right. We're sitting now, really far apart from each other today. You know me. I'm looking for any excuse to watch Dune because when we watch Dune, we will also have to watch Hodorowski's Dune. So I'm hoping I draw Dune out of this bucket. Man, I'm going to have that Sophie's Choice moment again if you draw Dune. Since I'm hoping so hard, I'm probably not going to, but I've got The Apartment. Okay, so the apartment's uh, an interesting one. Maybe I won't give too many facts yet. Um, Shirley MacLaine and uh, Jack Lemmon, I believe. That's a good one. Who's in the apartment? I'll give I'll give some facts during that podcast. Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon. All right. Now we should note real quick that we are going to have a podcast next week and the week after. What we're drawing now is for the week after, for two weeks from now. Right. Um, Next week we are going to be doing um, a mini mini episode of uh do the right thing because spike lee joint picked view the right thing yes yeah, so we have named our podcast after spike lee's do the right thing i can't read that at all annie hall annie hall annie hall and the apartment yeah that's interesting two weeks from now depending two. on when you hear this podcast so the the yeah wow the apartment and annie hall cool um, two comedies yeah um the apartment's got some serious subject matter in it though okay so um it can I be a little. You. It can be a little heavy at times. Okay. All right. Well, that's it. Ready. I just want to say thanks again to um, Dwayne Sawyer for doing our intro. Thank you, um, Dwayne. Make sure you uh, tweet at us with the hashtag of either Breakfast Club or Career Opportunities, oh, whichever yeah. one you like more. Um, you can tweet that at Steve in NoHo Wood or at Movie Hippo or even at No Lag Gamers. Thank you so and much. Be for sure listening. to watch. Do the right thing. The apartment. The apartment. And Annie Hall. And Annie Hall. Thanks for listening, guys. Bon cinema.